Welcome to this week's edition of Frivolous Gravitas, uh, where we will be talking about something which I luckily know absolutely nothing about or have very limited knowledge, uh, but I'll try. Um, so I'm in the same bed as you, uh, probably, who are listening, because this is a new technology that Chris is going to be um, taking us through. Uh, that is the uh, technology of a neural network, which sounds a lot like, you know, brain, but I think it's a lot different than that. So um, why don't we just start by, uh, I don't know, Chris, why don't you just take us off and tell us what a neural network actually is? For sure. So hello and welcome everyone, Frivolous Gravitas. I'm uh, Chris Driver and this is Jordan Roy, my co-host extraordinaire. So we often hear about um, anthropomorphic terms to describe generalized compute functions like neural nets, but I think it's important that we get a rudimentary understanding of what we're referring to generally when we talk about uh, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and uh, deep neural networks and all that kind of stuff. So the reason why I think it's important is because we haven't really yet developed sound regulations relating to its applications, and it's already so ubiquitous in technology that it's being pre-installed in our vehicles, games, and appliances, and even applied in government now. So it's kind of important because the potential harms which may arise by misuse and misunderstanding, um, they can bear very severe life-altering consequences for all members of society based on how they're applied and where they're applied. So before we get into those issues and to help just avoid the worst uh, outcomes, I think we should first try to understand what exactly machine learning, artificial intelligence systems are doing and how they work from the inside out. So to do that, we'll just cover some really basic examples. So I'm not going to get like heavy into math or anything, so you don't have to worry about that. But maybe we can do um, like a side episode, you know, episode 16.5, where you just kind of show your math or show us a bunch of pretty graphs. And... Yeah, I'll probably get into that when we do an episode on my research project and stuff, because that's all machine learning, neural nets and, and stuff. But it, it's kind of... Um, it's hard to discuss it when we don't have a baseline of terms and, and concepts. So I'm just going to give the very briefest overview of con conceptually how they work just to take the magic out of the system. So uh, essentially a neural net relates to a graph structure in data science. And it's akin to playing like all possible combinations of a game like tic-tac-toe, uh, to which we then refer to a computer as having learned how to best play the next move. So that's where we get the artificial part of AI. Um, it's not real intelligence. It's just a bunch of math equations and probabilities and statistics, and it's giving you the best uh, solution based on its training set, not based on any cogitation or thought. Right. So um, now I've I've got a bit of computer, uh, you know basic computer knowledge so it's the difference between this and something that we would just consider a regular program would be um, i'll get into that you guys gotta let me oh sorry explain what it is first <laughs> yeah sorry so in the game of tic-tac-toe we'd play on a three by three grid where each space of the grid can only contain one of two possible values either an x or a zero based on who's who or an o based on whose turn it is so you can imagine then that if given enough time, one could easily write a program that tested every possible combination of all possible moves on a three by three grid. 
and then calculate some probabilities for each of the possible choice moves uh, based on having played every single game possible. The math would look something like this. It would be like the first player moves, um, they have nine available options on the grid because there's nine spaces in a three by three grid. The second player move only has eight available options and all the options are the same as the first player except the one move that the first player actually chose to make. The third move would then award the player with seven remaining options because two boxes are checked, et cetera, et cetera. So basically in the math, it would look a lot like geometry in the sense that when you think of a point, you consider it not to have any dimension, like it has no depth, width, or height. So in truth, if we were to draw a point accurately, um, we'd not be able to see it on a grid or map it because there would be no face for the, for the light to hit for us to see it. So technically, even a point on a Euclidean geometric space or on a graph or something isn't really there. So one point has no dimension, and that's kind of crucial just for this one point that I wanted to get to, no pun intended. So um, if we were to draw it accurately, we wouldn't be able to see it because it has no thickness and no face. And it's just an infinitesimal point for the sake of readability and utility, though, uh, we'll usually mark the point as a dot, just so we know where it is. But it, it's not actually that it's physically in that spot, right? And the reason why that's important is because when it relates to the math and the geometry, um, what we're doing is expanding dimensions of possibilities. And that sounds really convoluted and complicated, but what we mean in math by, by dimensions is just that we're extracting out... Um, more more range of motion from from the original point <clears throat> so for instance if you wanted to expand a dot across a spatial dimension you'd need two points to make a line and essentially uh we'd we'd have like a one-dimensional line from those two points and it may only have length with no depth or height or only height with no width or depth but the point is we'd, we'd have added a dimension to it by adding in infinitely many small points in between point A and point B. So <clears throat> if we add a dimension to a line, we can then describe the area in the integration of all the infinitely many lines. So if our line had only width and no height or depth, we could then make a rectangle from any line by adding a height or depth and multiplying the length by another length. So this is what we refer to as an area having two-dimensional shape because you're taking that line and you're integrating it over all the infinite many uh, ranges in between the, the height that we've added. So you see how we get from a point to a line by stretching out millions and millions of little points. And then, and then when we have two points in a it... line and we turn them like this, we can stretch them out like this over width to get a two-dimensional space. Right. So in the premise of neural networks, we expand a whole set of options, like the eight possible moves remaining after the first player places the first X, as if we're expanding a dimension of games out from the first move. That's sort of how it relates. Right. Um, so now, just, sorry. Okay, yeah, sorry. Well, because oh, uh, after a while, because after, if you have eight possible moves, tic-tac-toe is nice and simple, uh, but if you have eight possible moves, um, after a while, the numbers are going to get a little higher uh, for the possibilities of the next move. Yeah, they grow exponentially. Yes, this is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah. 
no non-math brains. So, uh, <laughs> um, and then, but as they grow exponentially, you can't just have it look through um, and play every single uh, move over, you know, um, one by one to see which one has the highest probability because that would take forever. You'd need infinite processing speed and you would need um, a library that would take two, it would be almost prohibitively large. Um, yeah. So you need a shortcut. And that's what the data scientist does. Is it the, the engineer of the neural network is looking to optimize it so that you can get the optimal result without having to do all the computation. Mm -hmm. So otherwise we just have one algorithm and we just plug everything into it and everything would work fine. The reason that doesn't work is like you said, every time you have one new option and another option after that, it exponentially makes the compute processing required to, to calculate it um, just endless, essentially. But the thing is, we go about that in a very particular way. Um, but I want to get that after we first define like what the basic neural network is before we start delving into like optimization problems and things like that. Because right. that's where all the math comes in is like Hilbert spaces and Markov spaces and gauge theory and all that junk. Okay. We're going to so, be <clears throat> defining today. <laughs> um, so we can simply theoretically on a simple system, like with tic-tac-toe, um, we can multiply available options with remaining available options. So it's like nine times eight times seven times whatever. Um, most of the games will end sooner than that, but knowing what the maximum length is is useful for an engineer since the problem demand is exponentially heavier compute load, as you said, uh, as the data sets and possibilities are expanded. So for tic-tac-toe, I, I had to look it up just because I, I tried to do the math and it was wrong. <laughs> there, there are precisely 255,168 possible games to play. So it's not exactly nine factorial, but if you did like nine times eight times seven, which is nine factorial, it comes something like 380,000 or something like that. It's, it, it's, it's a huge number, number for people to calculate, but for computers, it's really easy because, you know, you can process one gigahertz is one million cycles a second. Yeah. Right. But it if might take seven clock like, cycles to do a calculation. But if you're, if you're playing something like chess or checkers or even a card game, uh, it's beyond um was someone said that there was more um there's more combinations to a solitaire setup than there are like atoms in the universe or something stupid like that <laughs> yeah because, i'm not sure i believe that but well it's because you have a 52 deck card and so well and it was the odds of like getting the same uh playing the same game of cards that is, might be true yeah yeah uh because just the you have 52 cards and the way they're set up and then the way you play it, you know, you just infinitely, it just expands and expands exponentially, like you said. Yeah. So, so yeah. I think the number of atoms in the universe is somewhere in the, the order of like 10 to the power of 82 is the last number I heard. Yeah. Something that we literally can't imagine. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> How do we encourage the system to know what a favorable solution is? Well, the question is answered pretty much just by a cost function. Um, 
We write a function that leads a computer to the types of results that we're looking for. And one way of going about doing this is to have a cost function. Another is to provide a reward function, which is kind of the same thing, but with you know, a negative sign instead of a positive sign. Um, either or works sort of the same similarly, but the optimization functions work differently on them because of negative numbers and the way you multiply negative numbers creates negatives and then it just throws everything into imbalance. So usually they stick to positive numbers and then they try to minimize um, using gradient descent. I'm not sure if, are you familiar with gradient descent or? Um, I'm not familiar with cost functions. No, um, no, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish the cost. Okay. I'll, I'll yeah, go no. the cost functions, but um, do you Sorry, think we no, should get into like? No, that's too mathy. Probably. Um, Let's get that for next time. We can do the math um, another time, but <clears throat> let's just, um, you know, simplify it. Okay. Well, simply <laughs> put, um, our tic-tac-toe example would write a cost function then that a that uh, awarded points based on success of a game. So okay. pretty much just any score. And then the objective of the of the neural net would be to maximize its score. So maybe you'd think of giving it a higher score if it wins sooner, just to help it try and win right away. Okay. Not so throw it, away hands and things like that. Or it, it goes through the possibilities and will give them more time uh, if they have a certain result because some of them are all just going to be like well, this this these types of results or everything down this path i guess would be you know a loss everything down this path path would be a uh a tie or a stalemate everything it's more down like this branching path, trees yeah that's what i'm thinking because you have yeah. like you have all these possibilities and if i put an x here uh, well okay i can still win but after a certain time putting an x in another box would result in a loss every single time so you just everything down that branch yeah uh, is no maybe we don't have to and it'll go through that. every possible dumb combination <clears throat> imagine right even if it has a winning chance it'll still pick the dumb one for a hundred thousand times until it finds that one winning right <laughs> so it's really dumb. but it's yeah. just brute force that you can do it over and over and over again once it finally gets the aha and it gets a score from it it scrubs everything else clean and then it keeps working with that one mm-hmm and it's not doing that based on like volition or a want or a need or anything like that. It's strictly like, is this number greater than this number or lesser than this number? Then do this. So it's just strictly math. There's no cogitation whatsoever implied by it. Um, so you can then graph the, co the cost function of the results that you get from all the training data, from all the attempts that you've made at the game and focus on just the most successful ones. The simplest cost function is just taking um, the sum of squares. So if you've got a cost function and you're trying to minimize it, right? So squaring anything makes it exponentially larger. So when you're trying to find a local minimum, that, that's the whole gradient descent thing, but that's technical detail. Basically, all you're saying is, is one number bigger than the other number? Yes. Then that's a higher cost, so less reward. Do the other thing more. Uh, that's essentially all it's all it's doing. So Are you saying cost function or cost function? Cost. Okay, so my brain went somewhere. I went into trigonometry in my brain because well, I thought you said cost. Trig in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, sine yeah. waves and cos cosine waves are really useful because they keep everything within a one boundary on a unit circle. So they are used a lot. Right. Okay. <laughs> but. Um, 
Yeah, so trying everything to evaluate success and failure based on a cost-reward function prescribed by a human has its own pitfalls. And importantly, that's the methodology of training in neural nets and interpreting its results that we find the perils of artificial intelligence. It's not in the algorithm we have to fear, it's the application of the algorithms or our faith in the outputs or our readings of their efficacy. If we assume an ML algorithm trained is perfect and assumes the engineer and the algorithm has discovered a perfect truth in nature, so to speak. So it's needless to say, that's quite rare to like discover E equals MC squared because of a neural net. Well, it's like only reading one book your entire life because it's the way and the truth. Yeah, no, (laughs) it's all, it's more like nature in that it's all probabilities like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle dealing with subatomic matter and virtual particles and stuff like that. So we're looking to develop systems that provide useful information and useful functions after having learned from our training data but you should never really rely on a computer operating on guesses and probabilities from a lab environment or closed simulation of hypotheticals. So it's never, it's never going to be the one-stop shop. Let's replace humanity with it because we have moral fiber and, and spiritual beliefs and, you know, core values and things like that, that you can't, you could try to program them in, but the computer is going to find all the dumbest ways of applying that. <laughs> right. And part of like, it's like, we can get computers to write our books for us in one style or another. It's like, you're all morons. Part of writing a book is the actual writing of the book. Yeah. It's Wabi Sabi, the, the beauty and the imperfection. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, we can write a Mozart symphony. It's like, no. Well, why? Obviously you can do it. You do it because you can. And that's part of the... um I can see the approach in that because even you know, the writer, but also part of being human is like, let me see if I can do it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I have to use it. Like, But it well, also doesn't mean that the music isn't beautiful. Right. Writers well, do make beautiful music based on Bach and Beethoven and stuff. I think Harari kind of fell into that trap quite a lot because he kind of kept going into like, what are humans going to do once computers are doing everything? It's like, isn't it obvious? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the we want. <laughs> We're just gonna have sex and eat a lot. <laughs> Probably um, write books Words, and write books, symphony, art. like you know, find meaning some way, other way. You know, enjoy our family instead of having to be at work twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! What would we do if we had to spend time with family? <laughs> no, we'd have to work on relationships instead of working to put caps on toothpaste bottles. It's like that sounds a lot more fulfilling and rewarding. Yeah, exactly. Like working on our interpersonal relationships. And mm, spending seems... your whole life not paying somebody else. You yeah. Know what I mean, <laughs> or... not having rents and interest and and dues and taxes. Like, how terrible would that be? So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry, Harari, it doesn't sound like the, uh, you know, your dystopian nightmare that you think it is. Well, I <laughs> think he's the other way. Fear. He's a humanist. He thinks he that is. humanity is going to be, you know, we're going to find our true nature once machines take over all the work. He is a humanist, but at the same time, he spent an entire like chapter to debunking, not debunking, but like problematizing, I guess, I hate that word, uh, humanism in the light of this it's like well if humans don't matter anymore then what does it's like well in the human context 
human humanism still works in the universal context or the objective context it doesn't really matter but we already knew that so who cares yeah but I, I don't see anybody who's like working at a grain mill like lamenting the fact that they have tractors to to like do their entire fields for them like yeah. nowhere in the world is people saying oh machines took my job <laughs> yeah machines took my job okay yeah here's here's a field here's a here's a hand scythe go yeah. get me that grain yeah let's burn all the cars let's get our horses back after the first maids have no jobs like handful by handful cut into the back it's like you look at your like 400 hectares and you're just like oh boy <laughs> yeah exactly you'd never finish never no rot before you got there killing and you know rotating crops like it would be a nightmare yeah uh but Oh, well. so yes. So the the crucial point is the computer isn't thinking or guessing. It's just per performing matrix math, dot products and tensor calculus, like it's integrating derivatives and standard deviations and it's applying stochastics and it's just choosing functions over cost functions and repeating it over and over again. Okay. Um, um Oh yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, oh, I was just going to say then computing probabilities and matching the right answers like that humans prepare it's not the same thing as thinking of something or having a feeling and i just really want to point out that pe people that are afraid of machine learning the only way that like artificial intelligence is going to take over anything is if people just leave it in control and just walk away from their duty like <laughs> yeah and that's not likely to happen because people like power so well, <laughs> people like their doomsday scenarios and like the Cylons made absolutely no sense in Battlestar. I'm sorry, guys, but <laughs> why yeah. did they attack the humans? Well, you know, because they, you know, they, no, they, they, there was no legitimate reason. You didn't run it through. The only thing that was fun about that show was the good guys, but uh, <laughs> the, um, the, like, why would, even if we left a computer alone, like, it's got probably got more chance, you know, if we have a do ever have a thinking computer, it's not going to look at humans and go, God, they're disgusting. Cause like, unless we program it like that, well, uh, it, which not necessarily. Cause if you give it a, an objective that isn't specific or clear enough, mm -hmm. it can do that. Like the famous example is the, the paperclip one where if you made a computer and it said, Oh yeah, just make paperclips perfectly efficient all the time. That's your only job. We don't want people working, making paper clips. And then the thing starts like melting down people's houses to build paper clips out of it and destroys the planet because people are getting in the way of it making paper clips. Like there is that risk, but you'd have to put the thing in control of nuclear weapons and then tell it to make paper clips. Like how stupid would that be? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not or, just going to take over extra extraneous situations and, and other environments because it's not it's not capable of processing that math yeah because it can't be that broad you have to optimize for a specific focus and task i think and i, I think i tried to get into this um in our last session when we tried um tried. <clears throat> we tried to it was uh thanks zoom but uh will one of the th reasons that everyone's so afraid is well one science fiction and as far as asimov tried to allay people's fears um but um he did people, do a really good job with that though i know but he was such a good writer <laughs> um the um it's 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 a it's an issue of optics and even from the very very beginning um even in the um uh 
Bletchley Park days with um, touring when, you know, he's making all these computers that could do this and that. And he's, you know, people come up to him and it's like, can you make a computer that can think? And he's like, theoretically, yeah, I guess. And then they start throwing money at him because he's this like genius, intelligent computer designer. And he's not going to say no. So they put him in charge of like the uh, artificial intelligence lab at, you know, whatever. And he just starts taking their money to do computer research. And everyone thinks, oh, what's he going to do? And, you know, reporters and magazines come around and ask him about like, well, what happened if computers could think? And he like, he almost like fancied them. Uh, it's like, here's, you know, well, you know, the future can be so bright. And him and a lot of the other computer pioneers at the time, someone like um, Vannevar Bush, didn't really take it seriously. But it was still something that was kind of worth working towards. And we didn't really know anything about AI or have any hint of where to go with it. We, we thought for the first like 40 years that more processing power at some point, you're just going to get, uh, it's just going to like start blinking and go, oh, wow, I'm here. Now what do I do? Well, I guess we should probably start killing humans. But um, and that's one of those things where it comes down to definition of terms because Turing, the Turing machine itself is a very specific uh, machine. So yes, it, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like a stream of consciousness or something. It was just a machine that could convince a human, or do things that humans, um, or do things better that humans normally do better than other machines. So, like hmm. a calculator, nobody thinks a calculator is sentient because a calculate just calculates and it does it better than humans. So it's kind of a Turing machine, but it's really not because humans are never good at calculating. <laughs> Right, because that's not how our brain works. Now, we yeah. knew, like in the, I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s, eventually we figured out that if you keep piling on memory and processing power, uh, a computer, because they kept saying like, this computer is almost as intelligent as, you know, a fly or, a, you know, we can soon get one that's almost as intelligent as a dog or a rat. And it's just like, that's an oversimplification to almost a criminal degree because that's not how our consciousness works. It's we have hints and, but the idea that if you just kind of keep piling on power onto it, it's not going to work because, you know, they were calculating all well, human mind has this much memory. It's like, I have no idea how you got that, but whatever. So like they started calculating, like one idea is this, this many bits. So if you can have this many ideas, that means you have this much processing power generally. And then they averaged it out and it's like, you guys paid for this. <laughs> um, but then um, at the same time, we don't really understand as I guess Harari's books um, definitely show is like, we don't understand what consciousness mind and body are. We, we have a, we're, 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 we got a good sense and I think we're on a better track than we were, but, um, the two best people to talk or to listen to about that kind of stuff is John Searle and Kevin Mitnick. Kevin Mitnick is like world famous hacker from back in the day. They did a couple movies on him, <laughs> but he's super philosophical and he was, he was involved in a lot of like open source projects and things. And John Searle is like one of my favorite philosophy buffs and he had the Chinese room problem where he sort of took a Turing machine to the next level and said, well, if you had a, if you had a computer that understood Chinese and you don't speak Chinese, then it can convince you that it speaks Chinese, even if it doesn't, you know right. what I mean? Because it's got perfect recollection. Humans don't. 
So there are right. a lot of ways that you can feign intelligence and look intelligent just by having a huge data store and lots of compute power. And you don't even need to use it all at once. It just needs to all be accessible at the same time for whatever problem you give it. Mm. But it's still beholden to the algorithm that was built. The objectives that were set and the filtering functions or the stencils that they put over all the matrix multiplications that they do to optimize it. Because like you said, we can't do absolutely all values. But what you want to do is get the ones that are most important. So if you think of like a game where a computer is learning to play an Atari game like Break the Breakout, where you have the block on the bottom of the screen and it breaks all the little bricks on the top. I love that one. <laughs> the machine learning algorithm just needs to learn left and right and position of the dot. And as long as it doesn't lose, that dot's going to eventually hit all the bricks, right? So the objective's really simple, just don't lose in that game. And Atari mm -hmm. games are great because you can use the scores as the cost function. Right, and anything beyond that would just be uh, sugar. <clears throat> so it's like, don't just lose, but win. But that yeah. would still be reliant on the initial. Um, yeah. But then now... it can fall in traps when you play a game like Mario. I don't know if you remember Mario 1, but sometimes you can... Um, when one of the... What do they call them? The Koopas? The No, the, the, the Shell Goombas. Oh, yeah, that was the Koopas. Koopa, yeah. Yeah. If you jump on them on a set of stairs, it'll bounce off the stair and you'll keep landing on top of it and you'll keep getting this points rack up and you can get like 99 extra lives or whatever by doing it. But you'll never right. finish the level. You'll just sit there getting points. So it that's what happens when they fall into this valley where it's not the lowest of it's not the minimum of the cost function but it's a minimum because you get so many points and it gets stuck there and it can't come out so right. those types of steps that you take to find local optimum or local minimums using gradient descent those types of steps are engineered by the person developing the algorithm mm -hmm. and that's so, where it's always going to be a pitfall so even if you had a machine learning take over the or uh an ai take over the world all you'd have to do is look for one little minimum like that and it would get stuck in a loop. And there so, would be one in every single application. Right, because it seems like everything we've been making um, ends up being extremely specialized. As, as humans, we tend towards being um, generalist machines, essentially. Uh, we, can, we can specialize ourselves, but the, our programming lends itself to, uh, like, what do I need to do now? Okay, I need to... Uh, I need to adapt. I need to be a bit creative, and so this this is allows us to generalize. But from the very beginning, like we see, we hear the word um, sorry, <laughs> we hear the word supercomputer, and we have to say, well, it's just a, it's like a computer, but it's faster. No, supercomputers are usually uh, extremely specialized for the task that they're given, and even um, Turing's machines that he was building for uh, code decryption, they were built with the program of code decryption in embedded in the hardware there were like the software computers and the um would uh would come later and then even after that um a general computer a general purpose machine as someone like ted nelson might have said would you could make it do anything but then once you had it doing that it became more and more specialized whereas you know, something where our our brains work you know you can say okay I, i've now encoded a bunch of values in my head fire table chair this and that but now i can recode it and we can become um more or less adaptive but it's um 
I think when we say something like artificial intelligence, what we assume is that we're going to get adaptive intelligence that can you know, alter its program in such a way that it can say, you know, you, you, you throw, you can teach it to catch a ball and it catches a ball, catches a ball, catches a ball. And it's like, okay, I got this. But then you throw a brick at it and it, it, it doesn't catch it very well. But then, you know, it says, okay, what am, what's coming at me? That's not a ball. Well, okay, so I need to put it my the glove that the humans gave me forward a bit so I can absorb the impact because it's heavier. Uh, and then you you know can get better and better and better at that because it's adapting to the situation. Um, or if you um, drive a car into it, well, what's it gonna do? It doesn't know to get out of the way. It's good at catching things. Uh, it's specialized, but you can program something to be like heavy. You and no, no, no. I'm thought I'm losing my connection here. You are. Dang it. Did you miss anything? Yeah. How much? Uh, from the car, <clears throat> catching the car. Okay. So yeah, um, you're not catching a car, but it has to realize that it's different. So it's, and I think this is kind of what we were going to, get to i don't know is how we end up conceptualizing stuff yeah i was just right before that i was just going to go over the, the first thing you asked me was the neural network and the brain thing i'm just going to yeah. make that quick connection first okay let's, and, let's and, go there and a brief misnomer though too it, it the system doesn't reprogram itself it's always the same algorithm it just follows a different trajectory and that's sort of the reason why we call them neural networks is because the way our neurons connect to each other is not through single digits. It's through um, paths through a tree. So when we were talking off, talking about branching off, um, if you put the X in the middle, how you have probably more likelihoods of winning because there are more ways that that X can cross over to a win than putting it, say, in the top left corner when you start. So the branch for the center would be stronger than the branch to start on the left corner in that instance, because it would all it would have to do is find probabilities of all games it's ever played and say, how many times did I win by putting it in the top left? And how many times did I win by putting it in the center? Right? Right. <clears throat> or in other words, you can say as a cost function, you could say, how many times did I not lose? That would probably be a better one for tic-tac-toe because there is a perfect game you can play to never lose, but not necessarily always win. Right. So that's so, one of those instances where you choose reward over cost differently. It seems like learning, um, but it's, <clears throat> it's, it's tallying experience, which is uh, kind of what we do. It's anyways. kind of what we do. Yeah. It's just, it's what we do isn't binary. What we do has biochemistry involved mm -hmm. and it's got, um, it's got qualia. There's qualitative assessment. And when we build on our past experiences, we, we are so forgetful that we don't, pick and choose the right experiences to build on. That's why we have trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody experiences something really harsh. It affects them in other ways for the rest of their lives. That's why childhood trauma is such a big deal in psychology and stuff right now. But the unique thing to the way human brains work that is similar to how neural networks work, but not how any other computer systems work, is that it's doing all this brute force math, making those connections and reinforcing them by changing weights and biases based on the training data. So in that sense, it's learning in the same way your brain does. Cause when we go to sleep and we have dreams or uh, if you've been playing hockey, like 
five hours in one day, you'll go home and like start eating. And all you can think about is like the way you turned this one time today. Yeah. Stuff like that. Well, and you can um, map that just through uh, neural connections and stuff with, um, with mice. You can put them in a maze and when they're sleeping, you can, you can actually trace which part of the maze they're remembering while they're, while they're sleeping because their brain activity. So my thought is, um, it kind of jumps to a bigger scope on that because we have um we're hold on just making sure my computer's still going um we are uh programmed as individuals kind of it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a crude term for it but we're also kind of programmed as a species um in a certain way and we very much so and so it kind of sounds more like evolution than programming so you know uh, if I go up in the tree, I don't get eaten. And eventually that becomes a internal uh, reaction. So, you know, we get chased, you know, danger coming up tree, uh, that kind of danger. And it's slowly as the um, race gets more and more uh, experience, it seems to become more and more encoded into what we um, and how we act into the algorithm of humanity because of how we um the experience of our environment um, and this, you know, through trial and error, um, which very tragic trial and error. It's like, uh -huh. oh no, we got eaten. I guess that set of code doesn't really work quite as well as this one. And then it learns to favor this form of behavior and these behaviors. And eventually it becomes more and more and more and more complex over the course of like, you know, 40 billion years or no, sorry, 40 million years or something. Um, because, we are when we're constantly taking in this data every generation and even within the generation there's uh change and adaptation um so i think it's yeah and that's very that. very similar to like human beings like we're programmed in a whole bunch of ways through evolution like mm -hmm. a newborn baby straight out its mother if you submerge it like, it'll hold its breath before it knows how to open a fist right and then when you put something in its palm it will close its fist without even re realizing it has appendages yet without having the awareness of what light and taste are well i, I turn like suckles I turn and like cries 10 or 11, start looking at um you know the female of my species uh, that's not culturally constructed right that's programmed <laughs> and like parents caring for their kids and kids loving their parents and you know education like kids are so curious by nature and you sort of get less curious the older you get some people usually there's a social function to that like in societies as we evolved over time you want yeah. the majority of people to be comfortable doing repetitive work after they got good at it right and like you <laughs> that's want how they're that. most efficient well and as a guy i definitely feel some of this stuff and uh it's just like i'm this old i should go out hunting right now and you just feel that weird urge i need to go out into the forest and kill something it's just like yeah and a lot of people what? think machismo <laughs> is just some social construct and it's not it's like part of male biology to to want to hide when we're hurt instead of seeking affection from others and yeah uh, a lot of the things we do like get angry when we're sad whereas a lot of women aren't I'm not saying all women and all men. I'm just saying like on an aggregate average, yeah, there are even, biological differences, and those are programmed through evolution. And even, like, and you could even see how, um, I guess this, like Sapolsky, in his lecture series on YouTube, definitely says this all better than we do. But um, you can definitely see how even the um, reining back of some of these, you know, animal urges um, 
even is in itself part of the algorithm. It's just like, I need to not hit these people, even though I really yeah. feel and like our I ability want. to do that is better than chimps. Right. And and we superseded so, them like evolutionary and, terms. Because and, the of ones, and the ones who are most capable of recognizing and taking that into account and choosing the best option are usually end up being more successful in our societies um, on a statistically statistical yeah. level and we're talking over generations right right it's not like one person does one thing and becomes king that there are forever sometimes it works like that with like genghis khan or like a, an english king or something back in the olden times right but generally speaking it's like we got it's lucky with be genghis. A very distinct well, the mongols got lucky with Gen genghis khan but everyone else got terribly unlucky but the two generation the two rule rulers after him were absolutely um terrible rulers one of them was a drunk uh the other one was just terrible and then kublai came along and was like mm, okay i want kublai. more <laughs> well kublai was actually a capable ruler he's still like a bloodthirsty kind of guy but um he was by all rights uh more effective than uh Genghis. and um but then the yuan dynasty didn't last far beyond him um and um it's the same with if he looks like so, at someone way, like Marcus Aurelius or oh, Roman emperors, basically. Well, there was a couple really good ones. And but they were only then, relatively good. Well, no, I mean, like they still endorsed like, war and slavery and, you know, yeah. cutting people's limbs off for fun. Well, yeah. Well, some of them were a lot better. And when you look at someone like Aurelius and then you look at his progeny um he was a terrible father he was a great emperor but um his son commodus was an absolute um well he was a terrible person uh he he brought a lot of you know his father brought a lot of peace and stability to the empire and then he died and then his son brought not that <laughs> and see i think this because... sort of approach to evolution and like society and culture is an exact perfect reason to believe in um not diversity i should say includes inclusivity you want to have an inclusive culture because then it promotes all of the best from all of the gene pools to be the best not just because they were born there but because that's what's best for the species my yeah. kids are better off if somebody else who's more intelligent capable and competent is running my country yeah it's Megan... in all of our best interest to promote the best people my wife always talks about how diversity strengthens the the gene seed of the species because you know <laughs> there's um it protects against diseases and certain oh all kinds of things yeah oh, all kinds of stuff like that you know switching it up every once in a while that movement of people and and that mixing uh that the that the uh early natural uh philosophers didn't like um well that's good for us um we're not gonna be inclined to you know mixing is the rule that's also stupid yeah but <laughs> and because the aggregation spans generations like it's not about one person's lifetime and what they are and what they accomplished even the the lowliest of servants can give birth to a genius mm -hmm. that's what we really need to take away from this is that all those people who believe in like supremacy or you know ethnic superiority or whatever they're all wrong scientifically. Any one of the, the dumbest person who's the weakest and crippled and feeble, any one of them can have the strongest kid. 
It's right. not entirely likely because most people inherit genes from their, their parents. But if you have two um, suboptimal genes, we'll say, that cause a disease or a sickness, and together they promote somebody who would otherwise not have gotten that, that specific combination of genes that made them like particularly brilliant at architecture to build a cathedral. Like the first Gothic cathedral might have been from some layman and and a prostitute, for instance. Like where people are in their own specific lives has nothing to do with like spanning generations worth of lotteries and interchanging genes. Like it, right. it just doesn't work like that. It's always a it's always a surprise to me how um, people who have made it, especially like. Uh, you know, rich kids or something and how just terrible they are at just generally doing things um, or like how they have these weird, just very strange notions. And like, you see that in history too, where like the sons of great Kings are usually not as good. Or sometimes they are, you get like, you know, two generations after a great King, you get someone who's like, I think I get what my great grandfather was doing. Um, and um but more than genes it comes down to but, effort right. and heart and intent right like all those qualitative things about humanity that that aren't right. teachable. so all the best people and this is kind of what made uh america so effective and with immigrants real but yeah immigrants but like <laughs> even the people that showed up and it's like i gotta make something for myself i'm gonna go and do this there's a need in society and i'm gonna fill it just because i can just because and then these people who were like i got a dream and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put everything into it, and I, you know, win or lose, that's what's gonna happen. And they got the opportunity to do it, and all of a sudden, this nation is just the most like effective economy on the planet ever. And that is the romantic side of colonialization too. Like that's what inspired colonialization, which we know now is like terrible for all of the countries of the world who had to like s suffer under it. But that was the idea and thought process that, that was going through their minds. It's not that they were all evil people looking to exploit other people. They were going there genuinely believing that they were going to do better for not just themselves, but their family and their species and like achieve their potential, basically. But right, that manifest but destiny led to right, an aggressive not, warmongering nation like, like right, Germany. But, and, really, what I'm trying to say more is that, um, is that it's... Um, I don't really want to compare America to Nazi Germany because historically it doesn't really make. No, I'm saying the abstract of how they got there. It was all from well-intended purposes. Yeah. Well, every road to hell is paved with good intentions, yeah. but, um, but that's how they get there. Is yeah. What I'm getting at the thing is, is that it's this, um, it's that effort from below that, um, that you know you you try twice as hard if you start from behind kind of thing and you in, in our society we, there's generally um a it almost puts a premium on you because you know if you start a little bit behind the pack you know you start with a few disadvantages you know and you actually work at it you're probably going to be better off than somebody who was born you know with a silver spoon in your mouth because you know their parents you know probably you know had it and they worked their way up and then they finally got it and then you almost have to like if you're born in a rich family you almost have to like kneecap yourself and put yourself in a situation you know okay i'm gonna go down there i'm gonna work my butt off down there and then i'm gonna work my way back up myself so i can get to where my parents were and surpass them from down there because you know if i live here in luxury 
that impetus is going to not be there. And I think that's part of our programming. And I'm trying to pull this back into programming here. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of our algorithm is and knowing how to well, self-honesty will let you kind of explore your own code and you'll end up realizing that, okay, I'm an animal in my environment. Here's how I'm programmed. What does that mean for my course action soon? Well, it could mean a lot of things. It's There's no set thing. Um, that's why we have these cryptic uh, tomes from all times to be like, okay, here's what I'm thinking. Um, they all have some element of truth in them, but and all these, they're all discovering what is the algorithm and what is the thing that we're plugging this algorithm into. And the thing that, that makes like humanity like really special is that we are capable of reprogramming ourselves, unlike oh, yeah. computers. No matter what neural net you give a computer, even if you teach it to reprogram itself, it's not able to make itself unable to program itself. Yeah, my programming like its core programming years ago change. was really a lot less effective than it was today. I, I don't like I don't want to say that's like my IQ is higher, but that's almost but like the way I interact with my reality now is more efficient than it was before because I gained more experience. I was like getting this. It's a bummer that my body is not as effective, but that's life. You also put in the effort. <laughs> like if you didn't try to reprogram yourself, you would have stayed exactly like you were as infantile as you were as a teenager. You'd still be there. There are tons mm -hmm. of people our age who just never grew up. Oh yeah. I've met so many senior citizens that are pretty much just teenagers. Yeah. And <laughs> so. you know what? That's fine. We need them too. Like this isn't a judgment or a criticism on, on anybody in their lot in life or what they've accomplished or what they've done. Like it, uh, success is not even relevant to anybody else but yourself. Yeah, and I think that's almost, um, you just almost made a warning about teleological thinking. There is no end to this. And that's where that the Nazi stuff comes in, where they had this teleological, everyone has a purpose in the state. And that's, mm. that's, that's foolish, which is why I like living in a free society. Everyone is their own purpose in their life in the country. Yeah. Because they're living their life. We're just giving them a place to live their life. And here's some rules so that, you know, people's lives don't end. In yeah. Encounters and the people with other who want to lives. excel, you want to give them leeway to do that. Like you want to lever up the best because they, they encourage the greater good for all of mankind by, by um, extension. Yeah. And so this is, this is, this is good conversation, but I think I want to get back to um, the computer aspects. Yeah, for it. sure. <laughs> So um, we, that's kind of a, the biological thing of it. So but we're talking about program neural networks um, and how, and uh, I guess what they are. So that's a biological neural network that we you know, live with every day. Uh, we have to carry it around. But um, how is a, I don't even know if this is the right question, but I think it'll get us going. How is a, artificial neural network um, different from that? How does, because we... It's, it's different in the sense that you pre-program its forgetful mechanism. So whereas humans, we forget things just by nature of our brains. So um, I, we mentioned it before, while you're sleeping, you often, that's when your memory is most active. It's making connections, reinforcing things that you learned and experienced through the day. That's why you can learn almost anything just by repetition. 
and that's why practice makes perfect and training and ex exercise makes expertise and all that. What's different about a computer though, is even the algorithm to generate random numbers is an algorithm. It, the, the only way to really get truly random numbers would be to, to set up like a photon detector and check for the spin of an electron. <laughs> because that's the only thing in nature that's really truly random is the way like certain atoms decay and the rate of their decay those are all probabilities that we can't do anything more than just statistically average them out. You could get someone high and just tell them to say numbers. <laughs> yeah, and, and our brains work on those same electrons. So it is very literally the physics of, of the universe that, that makes our brains different from computers, just fundamentally. However, we can develop quantum computers, and a quantum computer processing a machine learning algorithm could theoretically operate similarly to a brain, but it would still have to be pre-programmed without the evolution behind it because there would be no way to make one quantum computer algorithm that was like all of humanity because everybody's different. We all right. have so many variegated genes and so many different upbringings and so many different cultures that were indoctrinated into. It's just we're programmed for our environment. So yeah, like we ended up happily and more unhappily, depending on how your life's going, uh, like this, um, based on the inputs we had. And so I guess if you, I, I, I remember Ted Nelson was saying something about, um, computing technology could have come from anywhere, but it came from ballistic missile tests. And now we have, uh, you know, um, Minecraft. Um, so yeah. we, we started calculating, um, now at the same time, there's only, a, there's only a certain, there's not an infinite way we construct everything. Certain things are going to work in certain ways, which is why we didn't, it just, the need happened to be like that. So my thought is, is that we can just hook up a, one of these types of computers and just get it going on something. And do we know if it'll end up you know, if there's some certain number of possibilities that'll end up, you get a um, an algorithm. You just put it to work on, I don't know, analyzing uh, books, and it just reads books all day for hundreds and hundreds of years, and eventually, it it gains an algorithm that's just really good at reading. And it, it would these programs, in the end, coming from different places, end up being very similar or well, I guess we don't even know that. Or we're, that, you... That's sort of the research project I'm building is I want to take every neural network that's ever developed and put them into another neural network to figure out what connections they have together. Mm -hmm. So I want, I want to develop a neural network that processes probabilities of neural networks that are already trained on processing probabilities. But essentially that would only ever do what we've done. It would never supersede us because it needs training data to know anything. So right. it could provide us insight, like um, things that are really hard to compute, like partial differential equations. Right now, we have to use a whole bunch of approximations and irrational numbers and stuff to calculate them mm. and use limits and logarithms and a whole bunch of complicated math. A computer could find, like a, a machine learning algorithm could find optimizations that we haven't found yet. So it would be a very useful tool in progressing math and science. But that's not to say the computer discovered it. It has no idea that it's even useful. It's just spitting numbers right. out from what it put in. And one of the major difference mm -hmm. between biological synthesis of thought and idea. It's slightly effective every single time, more effective. 
Sorry, you're cutting out. Yeah, sorry. King is it's doing it. Oh, jeez. I got you Am back. Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Yay. Sorry. Okay, so I, I think I was saying something like it does it slightly more effective every every time it does it, but um, uh, I don't even. Yeah, know you'd like to think so, but it's not. It's so dumb that it actually it'll do it a really good job, and then it'll get stuck in a local minimum, stuck in a local minimum. Really good job, uh, you know what I mean? Like it's woefully inconsistent. Some of the early ones were only seventy percent effective, and and like thirty percent of the time it it's didn't produce not- any result at all. Yeah, it seems like we underestimate how much data we have to throw at these things in order for them to actually do, you know, put their statistical uh, sets together um, and put their interaction with the data together. And at the same time, something that it seems like something that would run a tic-tac-toe game um, would be like, it'd be easier, but it'd be a lot simpler as to something that's, say, looking at... um, I guess traffic in a major in a major city. Okay, look look at all the traffic. See if there's what would be the most effective, and then you just run it through you know billions and billions and billions and billions of days, and that's almost probably not enough uh, because it would need to, every one is just one data set. Every single one overview of or uh, experiment that it runs through is just one point. But what the thing has in its favor, though, is that it's looking for patterns and human beings are extremely pattern conscious. Mm-hmm. We look for patterns in everything from like our work schedules to our lovemaking to how we cook, how we eat, how we sleep. We do patterns for literally everything, the way we speak, even how we mm-hmm. read, what we draw, yeah. like what we That's- listen to. It's funny how well we remember things that rhyme and uh, <laughs> like oral histories. You know, if you look at some of the old... Um, the old stories humans used to tell each other and making them rhyme, giving them a beat, giving them a song. And yeah. it was a mnemonic device. It's just, this is how we work. And if you want to pass a story down, you make it rhyme. And, and there's drums in every single music culture around the world. Yeah. Independently, they develop drums. <laughs> but well, the, the neat thing about all that is that um, the computer looks for patterns though in a neural network. That's essentially what it's doing when it's charting graphs and paths through all the different branches. It's looking Mm -hmm. for patterns and sequences. It's not looking for ones and zeros. And it's by figuring that out and by having the development of GPUs, like graphical processing units that develop from games and movies and, you know, CG animation for, for everything we do like artistically online and, uh, and, all entertainment basically they even use it in uh in audio production and stuff now that stuff is just pattern recognizers and that's that's essentially how our brains work too and that's why we call them neural nets but the crucial fundamental difference is we're engineering the forgetting process into a computer and Mm -hmm. nature does it for us by just quantum mechanics like okay unfathomable uh uncertainty Okay, I think I'm getting this now. So, and that's pretty much, I think you said it way better than I was trying to there when I was saying like, you need to feed it more data and like tons of data because um, I think the idea of a pattern is exactly what I was trying to mm-hmm. feebly say there because um, you give it one data point and it's like, okay, this is a failure, but you give it 30 data points and you know, now you have a couple ones and zeros, you know, yeses and nos and failures or 
uh, non-failures. But then you give it 30 billion of those and it can start to look and see what, you know, what happens over and over again, where, um, where things work, where things don't, where things slightly work. And you can put tons of models together and then you give it another 30 trillion of those. And you can, the further out you go, the better resolution on the patterns you'll get. And you might even see larger patterns. Yeah. Um, and, and like so, everything from even our biology, like how our veins grow as our limbs and stuff grow, they branch off in patterns, right? Like how our hair follicles grow and how, how our gait works and how the, the symmetry of the human body is based on a pattern on one side, not knowing anything about the other side, but growing mm -hmm. at the exact same rate. Our eyeballs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the distribution of hair in our nose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's really neat. Like you might get like a mole on one side, not on the other. And you might be like partly bald over here, but not over here. Like there are inconsistencies because they're diametrically split. Like there's a bifurcation from birth that it just never has a chance to communicate with the other side again. But even that but symmetry pattern in itself is, so is a pattern that we look for. Like we look for symmetry in mates. And yeah. sometimes like uh, there was a question on, um, I think it was Brett Weinstein's podcast. And he was, they, someone asked him about like, why do we, if, why, if we look like to look at symmetry, why do we always part our hair, uh, on the side? And they're like, Hmm, well, it's cause lack of symmetry in your hair. They came up with the answer, the lack of symmetry in your hair points to the symmetry of the face. And so you get like beauty marks. I think I've got one around here here somewhere and which show up and people like, 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 Oh, it look like I like that little spot in their face. And even that is a pattern that we look for. Yeah. Uh, and it's an evolved is, program too. Like you said before. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, evolution rather than thought is a, cause thought is when we say it like this thought is almost a, and consciousness is almost a small resolution thing compared to what we're talking about. Cause when you're programming something like this, it's more like the evolution of an entire species than it is the individual's mm -hmm. experience. Um, and where thought comes into play, the only reason why I'd give thought a bigger scope is because without thought, all these neural networks and stuff couldn't possibly exist. Even if they existed, they wouldn't technically exist. You know what I mean? If nobody's there to perceive it, it might as well just be not our universe, in which case it would not be something in our universe, in which case it would not be existent. Yeah. Hopefully there's some aliens watching going, oh man, are they going to make that already? <laughs> Finish it so we can come and get it.